What's up, New York City? We got some energy gangsters in the house. This is the Energy Gang. Debates and discussions on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey, GTM's editor-in-chief, and we are live in New York City at WNYC's studios in Lower Manhattan. Thank you all for being here. We really appreciate having you here. We are living in some dark, strange times, so you are our people. We appreciate having you around here, supporting us, and coming out here for some good conversation on the craziness that's happening in the world of energy and the environment. Let me turn to the two people who keep me sane every single week. They've been with me almost every single week for the last five years, if you can imagine it. Uh, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah, my two co-hosts. Catherine is our policy and politics maven. She's our, our iron lady. <laughs> she is in Washington, D.C. She's the chair of 38 North Solutions, and she is working hard um, to advance clean energy and climate solutions in Washington, D.C. during a very dark time. So let's welcome Catherine Hamilton. How are you? And of course, we have Jigger Shah. He is the president of Generate Capital. He's a successful entrepreneur, investor. He's our business and finance expert and our resident rabble rouser. How are you, sir? Let's welcome Jigger Shah. <laughs> okay, so we've been doing this show here for five years, if you can believe it. And I don't think that five years ago we would have imagined the crazy situation that this country has gotten itself into. Uh, but I'm wondering to each of you, are you more optimistic or more pessimistic compared to the first show that we did five years ago here? Catherine? I'm probably about the same. I'm always vaguely optimistic. Your steady state. It's <laughs> <laughs> kind of a steady state. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Jigger, how about you? I think I'm more optimistic. We went through the... You know, storm, everyone thought that the latest election, presidential election would have like dampened our markets and they've only grown. They've become more vibrant and people are even more excited about what we do today than they were two years ago. So was anyone here in the crowd here for our first show in 2014? Okay, we got some hands. All right. Has anybody been here for every show that we've done here? Yeah, we got some super wow. fans in the house. All right. Well, thank <laughs> you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so let's introduce our special guest, someone who I have followed very closely. I admire his journalism and the work that he does understanding climate data and communicating that data. It is Eric Rostin. He is the sustainability editor at Bloomberg. Eric, how are you? I'm okay. Welcome. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Ask me in about an hour. Ah. Yeah, that's right. We in the Energy Gang have many initiation rituals. We'll see how you fare. First off, you've been uh, a journalist for a long time. You have a very winding, interesting career. You started off in journalism at Time Magazine. You've been in academia. You've written a book on climate change. You've worked in government. Uh, you went back into journalism. So when you're at Time from 2000 to 2006, you were reporting on climate change. Mm -hmm. How was your reporting different then than it might be now? Well, there were 
magazines and paper certainly <laughs> uh, comes to mind. Uh, there was there was uh, today we have data instead of paper, which is even better than paper because it tells you so much more and it's like a total cliche. Like it's ridiculous for someone to get up on a stage and just say that data is important because it's like you know it's like oxygen. It's like imagine a planet without oxygen and suddenly we have oxygen. We can do interesting journalism. So uh, that is is the number one thing that has uh, uh, changed what I do: our ability to tell different kinds of stories. Of course, my wife is an audience. She's been doing this for actually 20 years. So this was like not lost on. Uh, it was no surprise for uh, her and, and her ilk that. Um, uh, we were able to do what we do today. <clears throat> so that's the big one. Uh, it, I was interest, it was interesting. Uh, I was thinking about how George Bush, W. Bush, talked about climate change. Uh, and he had two speeches he gave about climate change. One he gave to domestic audiences was, and he would say that there's so much uncertainty in the science, uh, and so we can't act yet. And uh, abroad, he would say that we need to make sure an international agreement is fair for all countries. So, like, even though um, uh, you know we were in this really weird, crass, like, post-denial space and climate, uh, it's it's interesting to to look back and on how far we've come, sort of laterally, I guess. So then I'll ask the <laughs> I'll ask the optimistic pessimistic question to you. Then uh, are you more optimistic or more pessimistic given the, that evolution you described? I think anybody who's optimistic has two small time frames and two uh, uh, small um, geographies that they're thinking about. If you if you think about sort of uh, everything, you know, which is sort of is civilization and modernity, like cool, and does that something we want to stick around? Uh, and you think about that on the longest possible time scales, uh, it's very difficult to, um, you know, the most optimistic thing you could probably say is A, we could be wrong, uh, and B, there will be challenges that we haven't seen yet. Indeed. Well, not according to Jigger, he's never wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, all a matter of time frame. <laughs> <laughs> Apple so will we, still buy Tesla. That's right. <laughs> well, when you're on the board, we'll see if, that, if you can make that happen. Um, before we get started, let's have everyone just bring their mics in slightly. I'm a broken record. I make sure that these guys Man, get the mics every this time. This is the closest I'm ever going to be to like being in the Bee Gees. <laughs> <laughs> just stay alive. <laughs> okay, so the world is a very different place from the world you described early in your journalism career. And that brings us to the theme of the night. Are we making progress and by what standard? So depending on who you ask and what day you ask, you're gonna get wildly different answers. And I'm sure each person brings a completely different perspective on this in this room. So one way of looking at it, democracy is in peril, wages are stagnating, robots are coming to take our jobs, facts don't matter anymore, climate change is here right now and we aren't even close to addressing it. That's how I feel every morning when I look at Twitter. The other way to look at it is, by almost every metric, the world is getting safer, richer, and more efficient. And every day we're making astounding progress in deploying renewable energy in industrialized countries and getting cleaner energy access to people around the world 
who need it most in developing countries. So if you're like me, simultaneously you can feel both ways about the world. So I thought it would be fun to tackle this theme. How do we judge progress? And we've talked about this a little bit before the show and each, each of us brings different perspectives and we're gonna apply this question to the international, national, and local level here in New York. So once we finish that up, we are going to take a few audience questions as well. And maybe if you want to uh, make your question tied to the theme, maybe tell us what you're optimistic or pessimistic about and then pose a question to us. Of course, we want to keep questions short. We're probably only going to have time for a few of them, uh, but we definitely want to hear from all of you. Now, before we start, we have to keep pace with the volume of fake news out there. And we need to break Eric here into the gang. So hmm. it's time for Mad Libs, Energy Gang style. I've written a breaking news story for GTM in the form of a Mad Lib. And uh, we're going to see what's happening out there in the world. And we're going to go through, see if we can fill this out, and see what we come up with in the world of fake news. So Eric, first one, the CEO you admire the most. Jigger Shaw. Oh. <laughs> This is not going to go well. <laughs> How many beers did you have backstage? <laughs> Jigger, your favorite childhood insult. Um, what, was the, what was the one about... Um, Good one. <laughs> I, I forget. Like, it's... it's uh, shoot. The... <laughs> channel the like uh just pick like a cotton-headed ninny muggins or something <laughs> i don't know um long time ago the, wasn't the, it the i know i know you are but what am i ah, ah. okay okay couldn't like get the start of it <laughs> Catherine, your least favorite renewable energy source no um, <laughs> I love all Horse, my children horses. the same. I knew you were going to say that. No, no, no. Biofuels. Biofuels. Ooh. Sorry. <laughs> Eric, the gadget you can't live without. A refrigerator. Ooh. <laughs> Catherine, your least favorite subject in college. Oh, I was really bad at geology. All the rocks looked just the same. <laughs> they were all black and hard. <laughs> okay, Eric, back over to you. Your least favorite Silicon Valley bro trend. Uh, <laughs> driving Teslas. Oh, Ooh. really? That's not the, this is not the crowd you want to say that to. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Short seller, short seller. I don't hold. Jigger, your weapon of choice in the zombie apocalypse. Machete. That's a great choice. <laughs> My wife and I often talk about this, and so we're taking stock of who's going to be on our team in the post-apocalyptic world. I think you've made the cut. Uh, Catherine, your, your favorite drink? Uh, Chardonnay. Mm. I hope I can read this back. My handwriting is terrible. Jigger, your biggest consumable vice or guilty pleasure? Um, chocolate almonds from uh, Trader Joe's. 
Eric, name an obscure regulatory body. Uh, FIMSA. FEMSA? FIMSA. What is FIMSA? The Pipelines and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration. Okay. <laughs> Catherine, what is your favorite clean energy law ever created? The Clean Air Act. The Clean Air Act. Okay. Of uh, I think the angels just opened The clouds just opened up. The angels started singing. Jigger, your favorite complicated term for a financial transaction? Uh, CDO. Okay, Catherine, what you feel right now? Excited. Okay, two more. Uh, Eric, job title you wish you had? A colleague of mine had a dream once, and he told me that he had a dream once. You know how you sometimes have dreams about like random people who like are barely in your life. And he told me that he had a dream that uh, I was hired away from Bloomberg by another organization, which would never happen. And, um, and I was hired by this organization to be their karma editor. <laughs> so I'm going to go with karma editor. <laughs> Is that the person that's going to read Elon's tweets? <laughs> okay, last one. Jer Jigger, the most terrible idea that has ever been pitched to you. Oh, God, there's so many. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to say, like, the worst one that I've ever seen is the ones that have... The wind turbines in the... Actually, you know what? Let's go with our favorite, solar roadways. Oh, okay. Yeah. Solar freaking roadways. All right, let's see what we got here. <clears throat> this is from the pages of GTM. Elon Musk faces another defamation lawsuit after taking to Twitter and calling Jigger Shaw, I know you are, but what am I? <laughs> Musk was upset after Shaw criticized his new invention, a rocket-propelled, biofuel-powered, magnetized fridge. <laughs> to clear the air, Elon and Joe Rogan recorded another podcast interview where they discussed geology and driving Teslas. <laughs> Elon also took out his new machete and waved it around the studio. Whoa, bro, you're making my jog noggin hurt, said Rogan. Take a swig of this Chardonnay <laughs> and, a, and a hit of this... Uh, what was your con bigger con biggest... Con oh, and a hit of these chocolate almonds from Trader Joe's. <laughs> now, FIMSA is investigating the podcast, saying <laughs> Musk has violated the Clean Air Act by prematurely telling the public about his plan to engage in collateralized debt obligations for battery storage systems. Musk is now back consulting with the Tesla board, which is excited over Musk's handling of the situation. He announced over Twitter that he's stepping down as karma editor of the Tesla board and pursuing a different company which focuses on solar roadways. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was great. Good job, guys. Good job. All right, so let's get to the topic at hand. Again, are we making progress? So I'm purposely leaving this vague because it's kind of a test. You know, it's a, a Rorschach test to see how each of you thinks about these issues uh, because there are many ways to judge progress. And we had a conversation about what we wanted to discuss, and this was an idea that Jigger came up with, and we all agreed was, was really good for opening up a wide range of topics. So we're going to start internationally. We've, we've got a historic climate framework, right? But it's pretty weak. 
Distributed energy is now cheaper than coal in a lot of countries, but global banks are still backing fossil fuels and slow centralized grid projects. China is now the center of the solar and electric vehicle revolution, but emissions around the world are at all-time highs. So how do we simultaneously think about these issues? Jigger, what are the areas first that are making definitive progress on the international level? So I think, in general, I would say electricity is making definitive progress right around the world, whether it's um, you know, clean electricity, so hydro and solar and wind and then battery storage along with it, and then electric vehicles and all the things that come along with it, right? So I think that part you know, makes me quite uh, excited and optimistic. I think the part that, you know, is the hardest to, to see are things like heating, you know, things like, uh, you know, air conditioning, which I think is, you know, a huge problem around the world and, and something we need for adaptation. There's a lot of areas where we aren't seeing as much progress as we'd like, but in electricity, I think there, there's, you know, wide belief now that the solution set's pretty good. Mm -hmm. But still, in the areas that need these technologies most, you, you simultaneously have governments saying that tenders are coming in for renewable energy cheaper than coal, but are still building out coal, building out coal at record levels, and you have international organizations financing these projects. So that seems to me to be uh, in the pessimistic camp for me. Mm, I mean, you know, I think on the data side of things, there's a lot of reports about how thousands of coal plants are being constructed, but there's actually no data to support that. So, like, I, I, in general, I think that people are using more coal sometimes in existing power plants, so they're running them a little bit longer than they, sh they otherwise would be. But I think, like, when you look at Sri Lanka, where they built that coal plant and immediately mothballed it, or in South Africa, where the World Bank decided to die on its sword, for that coal plant, everyone hates it and it's coming over budget and ESCOM doesn't want to run it. I think in general, I don't see coal having a resurgence. I mean, in fact, GE just wrote down $23 billion in their power business because they doubled down on coal through the purchase of Alstom. So I don't, I don't think that, I mean, there's certainly ways of saying, you know, like both sides have an argument, but in this case, one side's argument's definitively weaker than the other side. Mm -hmm. So, Catherine, you do a ridiculous amount of speaking at conferences around the world. You're talking to a lot of global leaders who are thinking about, you know, the post-Paris framework and how they're actually going to start implementing technologies and borrow from other countries. What is your um, optimistic scenario? Yeah, so we've gone from... 1.6 billion people without access to 1.1 billion people with access. So we've given half a billion more people access to electricity, which is significant. I mean, that lowers poverty, creates education for women and girls and other people, and um, you know establishes more peace and prosperity. So I think that's really good. Um, the International Energy Agency uh, said, you know, looks ahead to see what do we, where do we need to go, and you know they're saying we need 40% efficiency, 35% renewables, we need 14% CCS, 5% fuel switching, and then about 6% nukes to get where we need to go by 2060. And they they're at the two degrees Celsius framework, which is not great at all. That's pretty bad. But what they're saying is we are on track with solar PV and onshore wind. We're on track with energy storage. And we're on track with EVs. 
we need to accelerate nuclear fuel economy, um, energy intensive, intensive industry, and a lot of other building technologies. Where we are not on track is any additionally efficient coal, which maybe hopefully we don't even have to do that, CCS, building construction, and biofuels. <laughs> My favorite, obviously. But those are things that we're not on track. Is that, so, no one's taking biofuels that seriously anymore, though, in these conversations that I can I gather. What, what do, do you, you guys think? think? There's going to be an uh, ethanol push in Iowa mm, uh, yeah. two years ahead of the presidential elections. But that's right, that's become a normal time. part of the political right. cycle yeah. now. Yeah. 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 No, I don't think people are taking biofuels seriously. I mean, I think even the aviation industry, which is you know now said that by 2020, all incremental emissions have to be offset by you know, biofuels or other things that they do. Even they're sort of recognizing that they should just buy offsets. They should just pay farmers to put more carbon in the soil or do other things that are really great um, you know, work. But I, I don't think biofuels are on track to doing anything. There's still enough interest that there's occasional uh, like novelty test flights for, for yeah, airlines, like, I just, you know, send out a press release saying, hey, we flew this on, you know. Yeah, that. there was another one yesterday on, uh, I think it was Qantas and something else. And, you know, I just started just... It, they flew it on, on, it pulped koalas. Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, <laughs> I, 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 like, when I see biofuel stories, I just burst out laughing now. But I think, um, no, look, it's very obvious to anyone who's looking at this that, that even if they get one flight to run for two hours on this stuff, that they're not on track, you know, by 2050 at actually replacing all aviation fuel with biofuels. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, so I, this is going to be this sort of niche thing on the side. Well, this, this is kind of the case for optimism. So uh, I can remember in maybe 2012 or 2011, the, the Rio Plus 20 conference, and I was there talking to a bunch of people and um, trying to get the lay of the land of what, you know, different representatives of government organizations were thinking about in terms of technology sets. And it was all over the place. You know, no one knew it was going to work necessarily. Wind and solar investments were surging, and people clearly thought that those technologies would dominate. But like, it was still kind of a crapshoot. No one really knew. And now we're at a point where electrified transportation, wind and solar are extraordinarily cheap. Those three technologies combined with new ways of managing the grid, everyone can kind of agree are a huge part of the solution set. And so once we've agreed on those technology sets, um, I think there's a lot more clarity in the way that countries are starting to think about moving forward. So that seems to me to be a, a positive trend. Well, on top of that, I mean, when I was at Rio Plus 20, I remember I was on stage with the energy minister of Brazil, and he was, he was very emphatic. He was like, we are never going to do solar and wind in this country. And, um, and the next year, they had the all requirements auction for their, their grid, and 67% of the contracts were given to wind and solar. Mm -hmm. And, like, I mean, he was just, he was wrong like the day before, like, you know, we broke through. And so it's, uh, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not overly concerned about, like you said, those three technologies. I think. We just, like, even people are detractors are just getting bowled over, right? Audi is coming out with their own thing, and, and Volvo's announcing their big move to electric, and everyone else is announcing their, their things. And so I think that's coming, even in the semi-truck the semi -truck area, right, where you'd think, like, electric would never work. You've got, you know, five or six new companies that are offering, like, electric semi um, offers. And so it does seem like those areas are moving. Mm-hmm. 
So Eric, you've got an interesting role, and in again, you've had a background in research and in journalism. So you spend a lot of time reading papers, <laughs> immersing yourselves, immersing yourself in the scenarios that scientists are laying out for us. Uh, there's going to be a big pessimistic case for that, but do you glean any optimism from those things that you're reading? Because um, well, here's it's pretty dire. There's a couple things. One is so there's this, oh man, if anybody needs a break, like it's going to be so boring. Like just get ready, okay? We warned you before you yeah. started. <laughs> so there was like this is just one example. Uh, there, there was a paper that come out, came out last September or so, and this was a paper saying that, well, we talk about climate change in terms of temperature rise above the pre-industrial baseline, but what the heck is the pre-industrial baseline? And they said, well, if you put it here, then it means, well, maybe we have like 10 or 15 or 20 more years like on the tail end to like close, uh, you know, to close down uh, what's called the carbon uh, budget, you know, which is like the gap between uh, what we are polluting and what we should be polluting. Um, and the paper came out and like people attacked it and there were blogs uh, sort of uh, really dismantling the methodology. And then like in the last two or three months, uh, it's like it's turning up in really prominent places. So I, I feel like it's a, a science message there. Like, you know, science is a word that gets thrown around a lot and things are attributed to science that are or aren't true, but like, one cool thing about science is that like somebody could write a paper that everybody could like completely ridicule and then six to nine months later it's sort of like driving the conversation because it turns out to be right. Um, so that's that's cool. I'm very bullish on science being uh, an investigatory self-correcting process. Um, <laughs> and the uh, and the other thing I'm totally bullish on because I feel like Can if... Can come to the mic more? Oh, hi. Um, is... Because uh, I feel like if I'm not bullish on something, I'm gonna like get kicked out of the energy gang, and I'm away, and we have like an hour. <laughs> uh, whatever, uh, whatever your beer is done, you're here <laughs> for the long haul. Yeah. Uh, is, After it, um, I, I am so bullish on the story here. Like it's unbelievable. Like maybe you're all here, you're familiar with the space, but it's unbelievable. Like when I started paying attention to this stuff like 20 years ago, one of the things that really attracted it me to it, and again, per the previous question, like, I, I, I like reading footnotes, you know. Um, uh, it was that this was a really important, but really, really deadly boring thing, and that like nobody was really writing about that, so maybe there's an interesting way to do it. And now, it's like we're talking about uh, cars and, um, and new forms of, of power uh, more than we're talking about smartphones, because there's more of a revolution going on there. And so it's this, just this incredible, like, miracle after miracle after miracle. In, like, the last 48 hours, GM and Honda, you know, partnered on automotive, um, uh, uh, on self-driving cars, and SoftBank is investing in Toyota and self-driving cars and, and ride, uh, you know, ride-sharing. Uh, you know, um, like, the price of carbon in Europe quadrupled this year. Like... Uh, anywhere you go, you pick a boring thing that no one would have paid attention to 10 years ago, and it's on fire. Now, Literally. what's crazier about all these miracles is that they're not moving even close to being, uh, even close to, uh, you know, as fast enough as we need them to, to uh, bring emissions down. So it's like, it is this just mind-boggling race between this thing that shouldn't be happening in, in energy technology and this thing that we would like not to be happening sort of everywhere else. So, 
40% of the energy gang when we record is me reminding people to get closer to their mics. <laughs> <laughs> we edit that out. It's post-production. Yep. Um, can I have you just move your, the whole thing a little bit closer to, so it's in, the mic is in front of your face? You don't have, you have to move it closer. Just kind of pull it yeah. closer. To Hi. The, yeah, there you go. Hey. Right. Yeah, and you can move it away a Cradle little bit. Cradle it. Live with the energy gang. Just want to, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> check, check, check. Check. And then you can push it away a little today, bit Today, 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 today. <laughs> just, just have it right in front of oh, your just face. Come okay. over Hi. There and do it. He's always like, Catherine, your earring is brushing against the mic. <laughs> your hair is brushing against the mic. <laughs> How do you and, uh, hear it? Your Movember mustache is rubbing against the mic. <laughs> the, 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 the listeners will thank us. <laughs> I don't have to do that again, do I? <laughs> no, but you should pull it a little bit away from you. I just, okay. Anyway. <laughs> Anybody ever see that? clip of Dudley Moore who was tiny accepting a, a Golden Globe and he just went up and he went it's on the internet <laughs> okay so then uh, what's the the pessimistic scenario I mean you're you're Man, basically you, you alluded to it like the, the technology revolution that we're yeah. Yeah. That we are experiencing right now is not nearly enough to, to hit the 1.5 yeah. or 2 degrees C we, level. Uh, climate change is rough. Uh, and we were talking about this before about, I don't want to pre like preempt a question because the questions, of course, weren't shared with us beforehand. Um, but uh, like, how, do, how do people uh, like cope? And I, like, I ask people that a lot who are close to the scientists and like, the activists. Um, how do you cope? Um, and my personal thing is like uh, gallows humor, and I like have a breakdown once or twice a year. Um, but uh, you know, everybody sort of has to understand climate change in their own way, like or not. Like you can. The beauty of this whole topic is like if you like cars better than you know geology, uh, Catherine, um, <laughs> then uh, you know you you can get at ultimately the same set of issues uh, in, in uh, uh, you know, through a sort of straw that is, um, you know, in the right milkshake. Paper, paper straw. <laughs> paper straw, yeah. <laughs> oh, don't get me started on <laughs> plastic straws. All right, so Catherine, what, when you go to these meetings, you make these presentations, you talk to world leaders, what leaves you walking away saying like, shit, we're not even close to doing what we need to do? <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, part of it is that people do try to pick technologies. They're like, oh, we just need to, you know, do carbon sequestration and then everything will be great. Or we need, like, a million more nuclear plants. Or we need more. And, and, and my thinking is, like, what we need to do is set goals that, that create the condition for any kind of innovation to succeed and, and have policies that will get us there, like an all-source procurement. What are you going to get with an all-source procurement? Well, you, you lay out what you need, what the, what the characteristics, the attributes of whatever it is. Of course, it could include being low carbon and make sure that you have you know, cost metrics in there too, whatever all the metrics are that you want. But you know, I feel like people get so hooked on having a technology solution that they can't see that they need to create the condition for whatever is going to work because we need a lot of stuff. And How did that work for the Soviet set. Union? Well, <laughs> Mm. <laughs> Tough crowd. Tigger, what about you? Well, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about this for a while when I ran the Carbon War Room. And um, I regularly found myself in rooms with very wealthy people 
um, they had this conversation. It was pretty obvious to all of us that like things were going south pretty fast, right? I mean, everybody was talking about you know how they were getting their citizenship in New Zealand and what house they were going to buy and what bunker they were building and what their like plan was to leave and hey Jerry, don't worry, I'll have a guest house and back for you and like you know, I mean it's gallows humor in one way but like i mean it's very obvious to most of us who like have these conversations over beers that like things aren't going as fast as you know one would have prescribed to follow some you know proper uh curve down to Uh you know one degrees or two degrees or whatever but you know i think part of what i say to people is that um that's always been true right i mean you know, like, I just think people have such short memories. You know, when we, when, you know, World War II was happening, right? I mean, the New York Times was pro-Hitler for most of, like, the 10 years before World War II. Germany's really getting cleaned up. It's great how, like, all this stuff is happening, right? We had all these, like, white nationalists who were like, well, we don't really care about folks who are getting killed over there or whatever else. And then it wasn't until, like, you know, like, Pearl Harbor happened that we were like, oh, I guess we're getting into this thing. And then, you know, folks took over Ford Motor Company and made and made planes and all this other stuff happened. A bunch of people got like drafted into the military and, you know, things happened pretty quickly. Right. But like the lead up to World War II was like years before we got involved. Right. I just think that when you think about all of the major catastrophes around the world, whether it's the Great Depression or the Civil War in the United States or the bubonic plague or, you know, whatever it is that you talk about, like, it feels terrible. Like when you're in that that moment, like nothing is ever going to get fixed. It's all a disaster. We might as well just be like writing our goodbyes and, you know, like it's never going to get better. And then what happens is something, right? A Pearl Harbor type moment. Like for me, what I'm working for is like 10%, right? If we can get batteries like solar, wind, you know, electric cars, you know, clean agriculture, clean water, all of the infrastructure solutions that we talk about, like to sort of a 10% penetration, right? Then when the wartime footing occurs, then the government can get involved and get us to like 90%, right? That's sort of how this works. But if you're at 0.1%, there's not much the government can do, right? Because they're saying, we don't know that you exist, first of all. And second of all, like you're not even registered in our system. Right. Like you're not on the GSA schedule, like like all that stuff matters. Right. Like it just it really matters that we actually have a trained workforce and that we've had stuff installed for 10, 15 years and that people actually understand how it works and the policy is done. And then when when we do have that moment, right, where London gets wiped out because of some crazy hurricane that went up the coast the wrong way, then people are like, oh, crap, we should do something about this. So we got to move into the next segment. But the reason why I wanted to have this conversation on the global scale is because I'm quite riveted by the debate among intellectuals um, outside and inside of the energy sphere over how good we have it in the world, right? And this is, I think, uh, Steven Pinker, the cognitive um, scientist, has been a big proponent of the idea that, like, Every metric shows that the world is better off, that like our fears are unfounded. There are 200,000 people every day getting out of abject poverty. We're much safer. Uh, there are fewer wars. I mean, you go down the list and like we're doing better as a world. And when you look at um, energy intensity per unit of GDP, that is starting to be decoupled in countries all over the world. And we're making extraordinary progress. Um, 
at the same time, when you layer over the climate reality. So like I, I read Pinker, I think he's quite riveting, and I think that like clearly the data shows that like we're probably more, uh, we're, our, a lot of our fears about the world turning into a worse place are unfounded. But when you layer over the climate reality, that argument starts to break down to me. And um, I just wonder how you, any of you like re respond to that idea that the world is continuing to get better and, and when you factor in climate change, whether that sort of changes your outlook. Yeah, I mean, yes, in this country, we no longer own human beings and do not treat people of color and women like pieces of property, so that's better for everybody. But I would ask a climate refugee, ask somebody from Syria, how is your life right now? And I don't know that they would say it's any better. So I think, you know, part of this is like, where do you sit in the world, of mm -hmm. course? You know, are you one of the people who's been left behind and forgotten? Or are you one of the people that's been able to benefit and profit from it? And it totally depends on where you sit. Well, they're also not related, right? It's like... But they are. Not really. How you can say on, You can say on one side that the world is getting better and all these metrics are better. And I look, I believe almost all of it, including like, I think we've actually had remarkable wage growth and middle class growth and upper middle class growth in the US. And I think a lot of the data is obscured for political purposes. But like, but whatever that is, right? Like, you can still be afraid of nuclear war, right? You can still be layered on top. You're like, okay, mm -hmm. nuclear war. <laughs> like, like all this stuff could be happening. And they're like, oh, nuclear war, right? Like, and so the same thing's true here. Like, I can still say that like the village I grew up in or that I was born in, in India, like, you know, like now has running water and electricity and all these other things. And you have all these like, you know, remarkable improvements in India and other places around the world. And at the same time, you could say that like, that like their soil is like less productive than it used to be because of, you know, like weather patterns mm -hmm. and changes in weather patterns, right? And you can say that like, um, you know, that like London and Calgary are basically at the same latitude and but for the trade winds that they get, like they'd be at Calgary's level and they still don't have any like snow removal equipment. And so like, like, I mean, you know, stuff's gonna get real, right? You can still say all of those things at the same time. I think they're unrelated. No, but the difference for me is that, uh, the economic forces that have contributed to the extraordinary growth and wealth are what is contributing to climate change. So they're inextricably linked. So you can simultaneously have all this new wealth creation and um, change around the world that is inevitably leading to a major catastrophe. So they feel completely linked to me. Yeah. Also, I would point out the distinction that the big difference between nuclear war and climate change is that nuclear war isn't already occurring. Uh, that we know of. Well, scale. you know, right. it, it depends. <laughs> Wait on... for that presidential alert to come up. But I also, I yeah. like. No, I exactly. think about that too, because like when people, like, when like, you know, when people get too freaked out about climate change, oh, the world, you know, could end in like a hundred years. So it's like, but we've all lived with the fact for seventy years that the world could end in fifteen minutes, and uh, you know, that's helped some people. Well, no, <laughs> but I mean, like, but also if you if you take the time frame long enough, right? I mean. The age of fossil fuels is only, let's call it 150 years old, really, right? And so I, I just think that the notion that like you're judging like whether you know, the human species can sort of handle um, you know, this level of change and, and this level of sort of addiction to uh, technology, et cetera, like, you know, to me, that's a very short time frame in all of humanity, right? And I don't think that 
it's um, you know I don't I, this stuff changes I think on a dime right I mean um, like when you think about where solar and wind are today right if they really are at two three cents a kilowatt hour or four cents a kilowatt hour in all these places around the world having an abundance of energy is not bad and in fact an abundance of energy is what got us elevators and all the things that people talk about today right because they were able to even the arts the arts happens because of energy right like the arts happens because people have free time right when people are working 18 hours a day they didn't have free time to do all that other stuff right like today we the abundance of energy is what got us to where we are today and i think we can replace that abundance of energy with other technologies that we're all ramping up, right? It also and so, gave us the podcast revolution. So. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. Should we go to the national scale now? I Let's think we gotta, we gotta keep, keep rocking here. So, turning to the crazy situation here in the US, America is the engine, the engine of ingenuity on clean energy. Like, there's no doubt that a lot of the innovation that we're seeing in this industry, in this market, is happening here in the United States. But we have an administration that is turning its back on that innovation and potentially doing anything it can to thwart it. Or is it? We uh, have spent numerous hours on this podcast dissecting the Trump administration. And every time we mention it, Jigger gets really pissed off because he thinks that the administration doesn't really matter, you know, that, that it's not really hindering the progress that's being made around the country. And I think Catherine and I feel differently about that. Um, but again, it, it depends on what your standard is for progress. If we're talking about pollution, rolling back regulations that uh, you know, cause more people to have health problems and more people to die, then we are most definitely moving backward. If we're talking about renewable energy, there's nothing that this administration can do to truly thwart the long-term progress, and we, we are moving forward. So, so Catherine, your job is to be an optimist, whether or not you truly feel optimistic or not, your job is to walk around the halls of Congress, go to state houses, and put forward the most optimistic vision for the clean energy revolution to lawmakers and, and lobby on behalf of the industry. What's the optimistic case for the political scenario in the United States right now? Yeah, so you're right that the administration is doing a lot of pretty egregious things. And the latest thing is that they've said, well, all these natural disasters and climate change are so bad that it's gonna happen anyway, so we're not gonna do anything about it. It's like, okay. Um, so I think we need to be worried and we have to continue to fight, and that's fighting on the legal battles, um, fighting on you know, the advocacy battles, but there are other pieces of government that we have to keep leaning on, and Congress, of course, being one of them, and I think you know, Congress funded ARPA-E much more, well, the administration wanted to get it, give it zero, and they funded it significantly, and they just put $120 million into long-duration storage projects. So there, there are research programs that are moving forward. Um, I still hold out hope for FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, even though the latest nominee is not good news, um, because they are an evidence-based agency, and I think with evidence and with case law, you can, you can move forward with regulation. And, and I think in the next couple of weeks, they're going to announce, you know, they just did an order on energy storage. They're going to do an order on distributed energy resources. And that could really, that could give a participation model for every distributed energy resource to be able to participate in wholesale markets. That could completely change the game. That would be great. That's a really good thing that's coming. The other thing is, um, I do think, I know every week is infrastructure week, but I do think that Congress is going to do something on infrastructure. They are desperate to try to come together on something 
bipartisan and you're gonna get a whole crop of new people in who wanna get something done and take things home to their constituents. And I think infrastructure, you can, you can do a lot with calling something infrastructure, including resilience, which a lot of people really desperately need. I would say almost every part of the country has been hit with something that requires resilient technologies, with flexible technologies, with renewables, but without calling them climate change necessarily. I mean, I, I think we can get a lot done in spite of what's happening. Um, in the White House, and, and I the think administration we're going to continue plan will be to just have dump trucks with 90 days of coal supply oh. <laughs> dropped yep. off to states around the country for yep. resiliency. Absolutely. No, what was interesting about the uh, proposed plan that the White House put forward on when we were seriously talking about infrastructure was that they mentioned some battery storage yeah, projects. They storage. They had, there was a yep. few interesting stuff related to clean energy yeah. in there. And I transmission. Mean, I mean, there are a lot of things you can do with, yeah, exactly. with infrastructure. So you're kind of gearing up for that. Yeah, that, yeah, know. definitely. I think that's a, that poses a really good opportunity after the election. Mm -hmm. um, Eric, you and I had an interesting conversation that I think channels what Jigger has said. Um, so you, when we look at, like, actual pollution problems, right, the, 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 the regulations that this administration is rolling back have real and direct consequences, and that seems to be the biggest impact that this administration is having. Not well, necessarily the, the clean energy stuff, it's more like actual pollution that, that hurts people. <laughs> Regulation is notoriously slow, and the, the many different measures that this administration is taking are, are all across a spectrum of, uh, you know, from a proposal to enactment and everywhere in between. The, Speaking to what you said about uh, like FERC being an, an evidence-based agency and <clears throat> what's happening at EPA, which is also an evidence-based agency, is that they're sort of trying to make it not that. Uh, and there are these very boring things that are happening that don't get a lot of attention uh, where they're trying to unwind or remake how the regulatory process treats science. And so what we were talking about with pollution is in the 1990s, uh, there, was, there was these landmark studies that for the first time really set in stone that air pollution kills people, that uh, particulate matter. So it's, it's like either tiny, tiny bits of soot that are left over from combustion or, or nitrogen and sulfur com compounds, they can cause or inflame uh, cardiovascular diseases. And so we now have 30 years of science. Uh, and by sort of uh, stacking a scientific advisory committee and proposing rules, um, they're not trying, they're not immediately like uh, halting the regulations that actually govern point source uh, pollution. They're taking away the things that set up um, the uh, sort of vessel that evidence sails on into EPA. Uh, and so that's sort of nuanced and technical and boring, but like, again, like air pollution does kill people, uh, not as many people here as it does in, in China or India, um, but that's a sort of old fashioned topic that is, uh, will increasingly be in the news. Mm -hmm. uh, Jigger, what's you, so, so we had a somewhat similar conversation last year to try to figure out like what is going to happen under the Trump administration. What's your report card, Jigger, when you consider all the elements that we just described? Well, I mean, I think we had this conversation before. I, 
I think this is fantastic. <laughs> right? I mean, I just think there are so many meatheads in this country. And, and they give you so much lip service. But it isn't until you've got a guy with an orange face who stands up and says, climate change is not real and I hate all of you, that they actually start doing stuff. I mean, the number of campuses who are like, you know, realizing that they're killing their students by running diesel buses and are saying we should do electric buses is way up. The number of mayors who basically like said we were gonna do this press release but never followed through, but are finally following through is way up, right? The number of people who are actually doing something instead of issuing press releases to cover their ass because they didn't really want to do anything, right, is way up. And then you've got like Bloomberg who's like funding all these conferences and all these other people who are doing stuff. And that would have never happened if we didn't have Trump. Mm, I don't right? know. That's a counterfactual. We don't know that. No, it is not a counterfactual because I remember during the Obama administration, nobody doing crap. Right, no. like I remember, the city that's, stuff that's, has been going on for true. at least they five were, years. They that's were talking true. about it a lot. Don't get me wrong; they had great press releases and great chief sustainability <laughs> officers and fantastic resiliency plans and all sorts of crap. I've but never like, once in my life seen a great press release. Oh my god! <laughs> but the number of people who were actually getting contracts based on those press releases, the number of people who were actually being put to work, the number of blue-collar jobs that we were like filling positions for are way up today. The number of people we're hiring today is higher than it's ever been. And I just, I, I think it's important. I think it's important that we recognize that that's how this goes. By the way, the same thing happened under George W. Bush. Like for as, for as much as everyone wants to rail on Trump, Mike Bush was the one who pulled us out of Kyoto. And if it wasn't for Bush pulling us out of Kyoto, Russia would have never signed. Right? Russia would have never signed the Kyoto Protocol if, if Bush didn't pull us out. And the Kyoto Protocol would have never went into effect. The only reason it went into effect was because Bush pulled out, right? Like, and so, because the Senate wasn't going to ratify it. So the Clinton administration wouldn't even submit it to the Senate for ratification. Well, no, they, they, they had a, there was a prophylactic vote of 99 to 1 saying that they would zero. never do it, right? And so I, I just, look, I get that everyone is politically charged about a lot of things, right? Like, and they should be. I mean, ripping families apart at the border is not something that I want to be associated with as an American citizen, right? There's lots of things that this administration does that I don't want to be associated with, right? But to suggest for a moment that this government has slowed down our progress in any way, shape, or form is not true. Like, we are surging in almost every single clean tech sector. Yeah, and I think what it has done is it's galvanized people to focus on states and cities and look for alternatives because they know they're not going to get as much done. They can fight. They can have their legal teams fighting. But that had to combine with all of the grassroots forces, all of those people who have solar on the roofs, and say, why would you take this away from me? So I think there's this combination of people yep. now refocusing advocacy efforts in the states and locally, as well as people who are experiencing clean energy and feeling positive and wanting to fight for it. Right. Yeah, I mean, Trump clearly won the presidency because we had the lowest turnout of people 
to like sort of like vote and do all these things like like people were just phoning it in they were like well i'm sure my neighbor will figure it out and we'll get it done etc i mean people are so energized today the number of people who get involved in you know passing sb 100 in california or figuring out how to like expand renewable energy in missouri or arkansas or louisiana or tennessee like all these places have all these people who are super activated because they realize finally that they can't just like tweet something out and expect some governor to read it and be like, oh yeah, that's gonna happen. They gotta actually show up, right? And they're now showing up and that's great. I think what advocates have shown is that they time and time again have brought a strong force to galvanize, they have galvanized a strong force when people have tried to cut them down at the knees. So when you look at states that have rolled back net metering or created demand charges or you know tried to stymie growth they've made regulatory changes that upset the solar industry when you see uh what has happened with local movements in a response to trump we're now at a point where there's this advocates and the business community is strong enough that they have created a countervailing force and that countervailing force is meaningful. And so if there's anything that this administration and recent events around the states has proven, it's that that force is strong and getting stronger. Yeah, but remember, this is also built on the backs of decades of work of done course. by people Absolutely. who yep. started with a 5% RPS and then a 10% RPS and then slowly yep. crept up, proved it out. The people who way back, you know, decades ago, got the production tax credit for when done. I mean, all of these things have created the ability for us to bring down costs and deploy these technologies. Yeah. But remember, the whole fossil fuel free thing didn't exist until the 2016 presidential election. If you went to Jerry Brown when he first got elected and said, we need to do this fossil fuel free thing, he thought you were crazy, right? Governor Cuomo here, like, you know, would have never talked about that stuff at all, right? Like, I mean, Martin O'Malley, like, brought it up in the 2016 election, but didn't really bring it up as governor of Maryland, right? I just think that, like, the fact that people are even broaching the subject that we should start thinking about living fossil fuel free and the government has a responsibility to figure out how that gets done. That's just a huge sea change. And it's, I think, a hugely positive one. Yeah, I think what really makes me really annoys me when you make the argument that the administration doesn't matter is you're not considering how systematically this administration is neutering agencies that have extraordinarily valuable data that researchers use and policymakers use. Uh, and those rollback of regulations have significant consequences for public health. And so when you, I mean, Michael Lewis just came out with his new book looking at the Department of Commerce, the Department of Agriculture, the Department of Energy, and how uh, there are things that these agencies do that we just we don't truly understand and that these agencies are so understaffed that decades of work are you know getting hindered or destroyed entire data sets are falling by the yeah, wayside. I don't like, trust their websites they're, anymore. They're, right. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and researchers are not able to do their jobs. Um, you know, you have the, the scientific advisory board being dismantled at EPA. Um, 
These are really serious consequences that these are, are the same serious consequences that George W. Bush and Dick Cheney said that they would do, but didn't follow through on. Well, right. That administration is doing a damn good no, but, job. Of no, no. But that's why, like, people voted them in. Like, I just think that it's like you shouldn't be shocked when someone on stage says that they're going to dismantle these agencies. I'm not. And sh- then people elect them into office and they dismantle the agencies. You're like, I didn't think you were serious. Like, that would have never... I, I didn't think you meant anything you said on stage. Well, look, I mean, if you actually cared about that stuff, then, like, one, like, you got to vote if you didn't vote. And two, if you can't... If that's not enough for you, then you got to go to Michigan and knock on doors, right? And say to people, like, look, why did you stay at home? Why didn't you vote, right? Like, I just think that this party... Like, it's not Trump, right? This party has been saying this since 2000. Right. The entire time when Dick Cheney and Bush were in office, they were like trying to undermine science. They were trying to figure out how to undermine the agencies. They didn't in the end, like they weren't successful because they were busy with 9-11 and wars in Iraq and other places. So they just didn't focus on it. But like it wasn't like this wasn't part of their talking points. This is exactly what it is. It's trying to say. Right. And when George Bush was trying to like actually pass the immigration guest worker program, they didn't pass it. They didn't pass an immigration bill because they hated immigrants. Right. Like I just think the notion that you're surprised that this is happening when that the whole party for 18 years has been begging for this. They wanted like blatantly like blatantly partisan people to get onto the Supreme Court so that they could do their bidding. Like, they wanted this stuff. And then people voted them in office saying, they will be a lot milder when they actually get into I would, office. I would go back further, and I'd, I'd recommend the book, it's a few years old now, uh, Dark Money by Jane Mayer of The New Yorker, which lays out in great, book. In great detail uh, a, a narrative that includes what Jigger just presented, but also goes back to like the mid-60s. And like, Thinking about, okay, what are they doing? I'm nervous now about the mic. Uh, you're good. But, okay. you're, you're perfectly um, positioned. But, uh, <laughs> but um, one thing about the question is, oh, they're doing this to the agencies. They're neutering this. They're neutering that. Is like, how many people in the room were born after 1965? Because if you were born after 1965, like you were, even if you were born in 1965, you were not sentient for, you know, uh, Chicago in 1968, or, you know, Nixon sending out, uh, you know, the National Guard to Ohio. Um, uh, And you've lived this sort of charmed, like, you know, oh, well, Jimmy Carter, he was kind of sad, and then Reagan made everybody happy. And, and like, (laughs) what I'm saying is, like, for all of us who are, like, Gen X, like, the band of variability of stuff that we've lived in is very narrow compared to like people who lived through World War II, people who live anywhere else in the world. Vietnam. Um, um, yeah, and like Vietnam. Like there's nothing uh, in our experience that has drawn us out of our own experience uh, quite like this. And I'm speaking obviously as a certain person in a certain profession is, has a take on things he's not allowed to talk about, but so my takeaway is that I'm sheltered and narrow-minded. No, we all are. <laughs> no, it's just, it's one of those <laughs> things are. where we, yeah. we are living in an outraged society when every single thing that someone might do wrong goes viral on Twitter or on Facebook and whatever else. And I just think that like, like people are actually very deliberate about what they're trying to do. And they actually are not like hiding what they want to do, right? It's actually very obvious 
very clear on what they want to do. And then when they do it, we all get freaked out. We're like, I can't believe they actually felt, went, went through with it. Like, that's nuts, right? But people do it all the time. Like Sam Brownback got elected governor of Kansas and then promptly bankrupted the state. But he said he was going to bankrupt the state, right? People are like, well, he would never bankrupt the state. But I'm like, but he did. Like that, I mean, I just, like, I just, I find it shocking when people like, like vote for somebody who said they're going to do something, then they do it. And they're like, well, we didn't think he'd go through with it. Yeah, look, I think we live in an age when outrage culture is, has gotten way too intense. But if you're not outraged by what is happening on the environmental energy side with this administration, then there's a real Still, problem. Still, uh, I would suggest that, I mean, here's one thing as karma editor. Um, <laughs> that sort of helps me chill out. Our neutral karma editor. That, that uh, borrowed, you know, from, from climate science, which is every month and every year when NASA puts out their global average temperature readings, the temperatures are presented as a, like a plus or minus against a baseline. The baseline is 1951 to 1980. And so just having internalized that over so many years, I find myself comparing other things to the 1951 to 1980 baseline. <laughs> Like social issues, and you know, well, it's a big period to talk about social issues, but the point is, is that with a, if you pull back, like the tweet five minutes ago that just ended your world, like it's going to smooth out, you know, like the trend here isn't like anxiety from that tweet. Like the trend here is, um, well, we don't know where we're going, and we kind of want to bend it this way, maybe, but um, you know, think big picture, mm. but not too big. Well, let's <laughs> think, like, think like Jigger and Catherine big picture, but not like me big picture. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go a little smaller picture and talk about New York to wrap up this part of the show. Um, we've been coming to this venue for five years, and when we first did our show here, it was right when the Rev Energy Transformation Initiative was kicking off, and there was so much excitement. Still is a lot of excitement, but five years later, the process has definitely been slower and more complicated and more contentious than expected. Um, with that said, there are a ton of cool demonstration projects happening across the state, doing unique things with batteries and EV chargers and smart meters and consumer marketplaces. Um, meanwhile, New York is charging ahead with some offshore wind solicitations, and we could get some news here in the coming weeks. The Urban Future Lab, for example, is supporting dozens of companies that are bringing in hundreds of millions of dollars and supporting some of those rev demonstration projects. So some exciting stuff going on. Um, on the climate front, however, stuff that Eric's been following, a judge in July dismissed a New York City lawsuit that sought to hold oil companies accountable for their climate pollution. Um, I want to I talk a little bit more about that. Let's actually start with you, Eric. You're a local here. You follow what's going on in New York. A lot of the legal stuff, actually. So talk about the legal battles around climate change and the city's divestment plans first. We'll, we'll try to tackle that and then talk about REV and electricity market transformation. Your thoughts on progress and setbacks in those areas? Because these are really interesting legal cases that could have national consequences very quickly if, if one breaks through. The judges are not agreeing that they're interesting generally. Right. The New York <laughs> suit was dismissed. There was a, a San Francisco suit that was dismissed trying to sue oil companies for damages that are expected to occur so that cities can pay for resilience and sustainability measures. One thing that's, that's interesting is, uh, is the sort of the Democrats and the left are kind of, they're, they're not entirely sure what to do almost, I would say. At the beginning of the year in January, uh, the mayor and comptroller of New York City 
appeared together with Bill McKibben, uh, the uh, founder of 350.org and writer and activist. Uh, and I think Naomi Klein was there and they announced this lawsuit that six months later was dismissed. And they also announced that they were divesting the city pension funds from uh, fossil fuels. Uh, and it's this really interesting uh, juxtaposition of like politics and finance um, and law. And they're all sort of like entangled, like, well, are they, these are pensions. People have to retire on this stuff. So are they making this decision because it's a political way to get out of fossil fuels or because it's going to make their pensioners uh, more wealthy? Um, it's this, this uneasy marriage of, of divestment and uh, lawsuits and, and political ambition. I, I think it's being worked out uh, here in New York and, and in other places. And then by contrast, this, uh, just two or three weeks earlier, um, the Comptroller of New York State announced uh, a much more modest uh, divestment um, uh, uh, initiative. Um, so even within New York City, New York State, you have these, everybody's trying to think about it, and they're even reaching for the same word, divestment, which we don't have enough time to really unpack, um, but uh, they're, they're, at least they're Is experimenting, like I guess. Yeah. <laughs> no, the funny thing about the pension, well, it's not that funny, actually, of the pension fund divestment is that if they had divested when everyone told them to divest, they'd be something like $12 billion richer. They've lost over $19,000 well, per I pensioner. I spent the day asking tons of people about this. Uh, and like, the, like, we had a story today, Bloomberg News had a story today about Norway. And... Uh, Norway would have made like $38 billion uh, more uh, for their sovereign wealth fund if they'd not invested in fossil fuels for the last 10 years. And right. there was a similar study that came out today by uh, basically a sustainability uh, promotion group. Um, and it, I, I think that's true, it, it can be true, but my experience with these kinds of studies is that you really have to look at the methodology to oh, see you like and you your footnotes. <laughs> <laughs> no, no but, I, but it is true. I mean, the Carbon Tracker put out this report, let's call it five, six years ago, laying out the entire thesis, right? The Bank of England governor has actually said that it was true and, and has encouraged people to divest, not because of the moral reasons, but just because of the fact mm -hmm. that it was a bad investment because right. they weren't going to be able to drill it all the ground and then it whatever, whatever, right? And so, like, it, it does feel like the people who run the pension funds in New York did, were not really reading the memos out of, like, London and the carbon tracker stuff and went a little too long in their ownership. Mm -hmm. So what influence has New York had on the divestment movement? New York pension funds? Mm. I think it's too soon to tell because it's an experiment they're running here and it's an experiment that is almost unreplicable because you know when you look at New York State and New York City alone, well, the comptroller of New York State is the sole fiduciary of the state pension funds, which means whatever he wants in it and thinks is going to be responsible goes in there. There are five separate New York City pension funds, and they're each governed by a board of trustees. So you can see why the mayor and the comptroller of New York City would need to have like a splashy press conference with Bill McKibben because uh, 
they're not making decisions by themselves. They're working with boards, and so they need to go back to these boards that they want to encourage to divest, you know, with political capital, capital uh, you know, to spend. Please keep in mind that Eric Rostin is not a financial advisor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Catherine, so let's My go wife over. is in the audience. Too, <laughs> uh, let's go over to the Rev stuff. You have been talking to a lot of businesses involved in Rev, and you've asked them about what, what this process, what kind of impact this process has had on the way they think about building their service offerings and companies in the state. Tell us about it. Yeah, so five years ago, we had Audrey Zibelman here, who was the inventor of the Rev, and I was, I was like, I totally drank the juice. And then for the <laughs> last five years, it's been like crawling across broken glass. <laughs> I mean, just filing after filing after filing and not knowing what all the different utilities are doing and this program and that program. So yeah. yeah. Just for those of you who don't know, Catherine is not just watching this from afar. I mean, she is like I'm filing. filing tons and tons <laughs> of stuff. I'm not a lawyer so, either. Yeah. <laughs> don't tell anybody that. Um, <laughs> but uh, so I went to some of the people that I work with that I write filings for and that, you know, we have coalitions. And I said, well, like, really, tell me, how has it been for you? Like, what has it done for your business? And they said, look, New York's made a lot of progress and over the last five years, and they've really laid the foundation for a cleaner, efficient future, and that is for sure. And they said, it's really gonna take maybe three to five more years for it to be fully realized, but a lot of good things have happened. Every utility has a dynamic load management program. Those are continuing to grow. There are bring your own thermostat programs. Over 30,000 people are already signed up for those. There are non-wire solutions that have really been experimented with here, like in the Brooklyn Queens demand management project, and that's been replicated elsewhere. Yeah, it's starting to get and baked into Yeah, planning. so that's great. That's something that has really been very helpful to all of these businesses. Where it's a little bit slower, Storage is a little bit slower. Part of that is because of the fire department mm -hmm. in New York City. Um, and also the independent system operator uh, is not quite as, you know, they're, they're trying to roll back on demand response and storage. They're really taking a much more conservative approach. So that we still have to keep nudging on. Um, I think generally it's in a good trajectory. It's just that these things don't happen overnight and you just have to keep showing up and you have to keep filing. But businesses are being created and grown as a result of it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so when this started, everyone was very excited, but we knew that this was a 10-year process potentially. So like the broken glass was inevitable. People are going to get cut up along the way. But how different is your experience from what you expected, right? Like we knew there was going to be a ton of pain. Is the pain greater <laughs> than what was imagined? Well, I think, I don't know if it's, a, if it's necessarily was the pain greater. It's more that you have to be so engaged. You just have to stay on top of everything. And you have to, New York is a complicated system. It has a lot of different types of communities and different types of utilities and resource mixes. And you just have to stay on top of everything. You have to build relationships. It seems like we've, we've had to engage more in New York than in a lot of other states where you know, there will be some one thing that happens that you can just galvanize around. And this is much, you know, it, it's much different because it's, it is more complex and they're trying to do more at once. But in a way, I think they are going in the right direction. Mm. Now, when we first did this show back in 2014 here, we had this conversation about Rev. And I recall, Jigger, that you had some pretty disparaging things to say about New Jerseyans. And you oh, said that all God. the smart people here were in New York. Don't do do you still believe that? <laughs> 
Buck well, it was Eric. true in 2014. <laughs> I think today... Eric lives know, in New Jersey, by the way. So. I, I do think that today the, the new governor is trying to figure out like how to you know, bring things back from the dead in New Jersey, right? I mean, New Jersey was in real trouble for three or four years there, right? And you know, I think they're coming out of the wilderness, which is good. Right, but okay, so in seriousness, I guess my point is, um, ha- has New York lived up to the hype? No. Why not? I mean, I think I've been very clear about that. Like, I, I think that, you know, Catherine's very nice about the way she's describing this stuff. But, like, th- this whole thing has been a very painful experience. And, I mean... What's been painful? Like, what, what well, are some look, areas? I think, like, I mean, look, I worship the ground that Richard Kaufman walks on. I think he's an extraordinary guy. I think he's tried really hard. And, frankly, I think, you know, it's probably the most thankless job in, in the country, right? Because... For a long time, you know, the governor didn't care at all about these issues, right? He was sort of like, well, Sandy happened, I kind of have to fake it, and this, that, and the whatever. And, but, like, he, like, Richard really didn't have um, air cover, right? And so when the IPPs in, you know, Western New York were killing his program, he had to cut deals, he had to do all sorts of things. And, you know, and the, the sausage making is terrible, right? And, but he had to do what he had to do because there was nobody on top saying, I'm going to force this through. Right. And so he he had to do what he had to do. But like but I think that when you think about how many people have fallen out of this process, I mean, there are many, many, many people that I know who have stopped coming to New York. They don't come to the conferences. They don't do any business development here. There's they're just like we're done. Right. Like, I mean, you know, like they, they just don't show up anymore because they're like, we don't think we're ever going to get business. Well, hold on. So New York just went through a really major procurement they signed contracts for like 1,400 megawatts of renewables. A lot of those are going to yeah, be paired with storage. Yeah, but I'm talking about the Rev stuff, right? Okay, right? right. Like on the Rev but side, their like, businesses are coming. Like they weather the storm and no, 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 job like, okay, let's losses. And, like there's a lot of positive I'm stuff. I'm funding happening in the state. a lot of stuff in New York on community solar, and you know, I think the wind auction with NIPA went really well, and the offshore wind stuff is fine and you know the and lipa just signed a big fuel cell contract so like that stuff's going on track but so is that stuff's going on track in brazil too right so let's the bar i don't is not think that, it i don't think it is actually the bar, the bar is not that high i i just think that when you think about demand response and load control and systematically like offsetting very large expensive transmission and distribution substation projects and all the things that we thought the BQDM and other things were going to lead to, that is not happening. And in fact, I would say like Booz Allen went all in in New York. Booz Allen spent time on 88 different microgrid projects in the state of New York. That, that process winded itself down, New York Prize. Almost none of those projects were ever built. There were like a million dollar grant here and a five million dollar grant here, but they're not really built. You know, I, I just heard that Dirk left Anbaric, who was like hugely active here. He left Anbaric to start his own company because he's like, I spent five years here and I got no projects, right? And so like there are a lot of people who have gotten no projects in New York who worked their butts off, you know, on like bidding on Con Ed projects for BQDM, doing this, doing that, figuring out all this other stuff for a null set, right? So like, look, I think we all have to be real about the fact that the foundation laying took a long time. Like that brand new house that you were building is like three times over budget and the contractor keeps telling you it's going to make more progress next week, right? That's that's where we are, but you're still no closer to moving into your house. Wait, was this the optimistic or pessimistic scenario? No, like, I, like I'm just saying like the stuff that's going well throughout the country, 
right? Building wind, building solar, building fuel cells, building stuff. That's going great gangbusters here, right? But that's not what we bet New York on, right? What we were betting New York on was that New York had very complicated issues here, right? Because of the population who lives in New York City, but also the age of the electricity grid because it is the birthplace of many of these, these systems, right? There are a lot of systems that needed to be replaced and each one was a billion dollars. It's not small potatoes to go into Brooklyn and like replace this thing and do that, whatever. And so we said, you know what? There's a smarter way to do it. You can do it with storage. You can do it with demand response. You can do it with load control. You can do it with this. You can do it with that, energy efficiency, whatever. They are not more positive today in New York than they were five years ago on their ability to just say no to all expensive T&D projects. Yeah, so I think one of the companies said, look, a lot of innovative models are being created here, and that's great. That's to the benefit. Then you can export those models. They're just slow to materialize, some of the projects yeah. are. And I think that's just, I think that's the nature of how they set this up and how they're moving forward. But it, from the companies that I talk to, they feel like they're on a good trajectory. They're staying here. They're building businesses here. Yeah, and, you know, local startups are... Playing, playing an important role in many of the demonstration projects. And so there, you know, there's an ecosystem working within the REV model that uh, could potentially produce some results. But we're only halfway through this thing, right? I mean, this is a long yeah, slog. A long the other, the other, well, let's talk about like the positive scenario, right? So New York had a really successful solicitation of large-scale renewables. It, you know, got deals for 1,400 megawatts of uh, renewables. There's a significant community solar pipeline. Um, they've got some offshore wind solicitations coming up. There was that uh, positive zero emissions credit uh, ruling that uh, allowed them to, you know, do what they want with their nuclear power uh, to, you know, hold up their decarbonization goals. Uh, the, the prices for the large-scale renewables coming in were, you know, the rec prices were at like, you know, $20, so really competitive stuff. I mean, there's a lot of positive forces happening and happening fairly, fairly quickly. Oh, tons. I mean, we're the largest owner of anaerobic digesters in New York, and New York City is, you know, at least on paper, banned food waste from landfills, and, you know, they're waiting to actually enforce the law until we've figured out how we can actually, you know, use up all that food waste and but we're shipping it to, you know, Cayuga and Buffalo and Niagara and other places where we own digesters. And, you know, there's, um, you know, the state, I think, is going to ban food waste from landfills nationwide. And so, or sorry, statewide. And so I think, I think there's a lot of positive stuff happening there. I think the small hydro um, initiatives in New York are farther along than they are in most places around the country, which is really good news because I think small hydro is a really large untapped renewable energy resource that, frankly, like the FERC has actually already cleaned up the re- you know, licensing process and made it only six months and streamlined it. But a lot of the states are really slow to catch on and New York is moving strong there. So I look, I, I think NYSERDA has always done great work. I think they're reorganizing themselves in ways that are more um, performance based instead of just rebate based, which I think is mm -hmm. fantastic. And um, the New York Green Bank is by far the most successful Green Bank in the country. And so I think they have now put forward the definitive model that, you know, the Green Bank Association is now trying to replicate across the country. And so the New York Green Bank, I think, has a lot to teach people around the country. So there's a lot of good stuff happening in New York. But I'm just saying, like, the big promise of REV, I think, has, you know, like, not made a lot of people rich. Mm. Any final thoughts on New York? Should we 
turn to our listeners now and see see if we got let's some questions from the some audience. Questions. All right, let's get those rolling mic around, mics going. I think we probably only have time for a couple of questions. So I saw a hand in the back there. Yeah, let's go. Let's go back there. Let's wait for a week till we get the mics here. So. Do you, when you compare what CalPERS is doing, which is influencing um, large corporations uh, in their behavior with Climate Action 100 and requiring TCFD reporting versus to the New York Pension Fund uh, contrast of walking away from companies that are doing bad action, which do you think is ultimately going to have more influence? It's sort of all hands on deck, uh, if I'm reading the uh, sort of, you know, the advo advocates on the, uh, on the left correctly. And so there was an interesting, uh, Jeremy Grantham, everybody may know who Jeremy Grantham is, a famous uh, British investor who late in life has uh, really gotten a fire uh, for, for climate change. He wrote an interesting piece this summer about uh, divestment and looking at episodes of divestment all through, you know, whatever the last several decades and came to the conclusion that they just, they don't move the needle. Um, so things like that come out and we, we've been watching CalPERS, uh, uh, the California State Pension Agency for many years has been a, a leader in uh, using its shareholder authority to try to pressure companies to, uh, to behave better. Um, and it, it's hard to count that, I guess, is what I'm struggling for, is those things have become uh, expected and, uh, uh, and productive, uh, if, if, if uh, they're telling me the truth, in, in ways that they, they weren't when they first started maybe 10 years ago. Um, so it's, it's very common, and you see the scale sort of rising with the pension funds coming in and the big companies and the big uh, private and, uh, asset managers. Um, but it's, I guess it's not clear where the tipping point is too. It's like, so yeah, that's helpful uh, and everybody's helping, but nobody knows where the tipping point is so they just kind of keep on doing the same thing. I hope, that's I hope that helps. I saw this gentleman have his hand half up for a while. <laughs> Uh, Eric, good, you mentioned uh, uh, that you're optimistic about self-driving cars, and I'd say, um, I believe you mentioned that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, well, yeah. regardless, so you, can, uh, you guys can all answer the question, but I'm pretty pessimistic about self-driving cars, that they're actually, you're going to be sitting in the back of the seat uh, within, you know, the near future, but even further along uh, from a climate change perspective. I can only imagine that it's going to make me more comfortable to sit in the car for a lot longer which is pretty uh, counterproductive uh, for climate change. I'd be happy to sit in a self-driving car back to Boston, you know, for a commute maybe. Uh, so I was wondering what you guys' thoughts are on that. Yeah, uh, I've got a lot of I thoughts. Think, I think there's a, a, a huge number of really interesting questions about self-driving cars, you know, particularly like traffic. How is this going to help traffic? Um, and you identified some interesting questions. I think actually it took me a second because uh, what I was trying to express was like my, ex like I'm agnostic about, um, you know, uh, I think car technologies are super interesting right now. And that, I think that was more of my point was like, I cut it up and I read the news this in the morning and I like, I, I can't believe like everything is happening so quickly. What it looks like in 20 years, I, I don't know. And I don't even have a vote. Yeah. I mean, it's commonly said that like technology is neutral, right? It's what you do with it. And so I think, 
Uh, it all depends on how we plan around self-driving cars. Uh, clearly, if you look at the experience of Uber and Lyft in major cities, particularly in New York, it's caused more congestion. There are more cars on the road. So there are very clear knock-on effects of rolling out this type of technology on roads, uh, particularly when you can commute far distances and sleep in your car or work in your car, or you know, if you don't want to leave your meeting and you can just make that car drive around the block over and over again until you're ready to go, very clearly we're going to have congestion issues that we need to deal with. But I'm a believer that you can deal with those things through pricing and better planning. And so if you have tools like congestion pricing, I think you can start to solve a lot of those challenges with uh, self-driving cars. On the environmental side, clearly they need to be electric, and I think most of the companies experimenting and trying to deploy these cars recognize that and are talking about how to create electric self-driving fleets. And so I'm confident that that piece will get solved because most folks are talking about the environmental impact. For me, it's congestion and how you, how you deal with it. I think of it as an incredible powerful, powerful tool for people who can't drive and people who don't have the ability to, people with disabilities. I think you know, it could really, could really help people like that to be able to manage their lives. Yeah. So I see that positive. Jigger, any thoughts on self-driving cars? No, I think it's great. And I think, you know, there, there has to <laughs> You never know. I, I, you know, I think you're, and the, the, the one thing that people rag on all the time in the United States is how we don't have like maglev trains and mass transit and all that stuff. And I think people don't recognize how, um, how low our density is in the United States compared to the countries around the world that we're trying to like compare ourselves to. The beauty of self-driving cars is it will just create virtual bus lines and virtual um, sort of mass transit right overnight. So I think that part's fantastic. And you know, one of the things that I think is a, a huge crisis in this country that people don't want to talk about is the cost of getting to work. I think, you know, it's it's a horrible thing, right? I mean, mm -hmm. people in this country um, need cars to get to work and they get preyed upon by used car dealerships and all this other stuff. And like, I think if you can get rid of that and they just have self-driving cars, like take people to work and all that other stuff, I think it's gonna be great. And then for the rest of us, they should just tax the crap out of it, right? Like there, there should be a tax of like 40 cents a mile on that stuff to be able to make sure that we can pay for all this infrastructure that we currently can't pay for. Right. Um, and, you know, to try to limit vehicle miles traveled. Yeah, pricing will be a, a big factor in the sustainable rollout of the vehicles. I think what worries me is that you will see lines of autonomous cars circumventing public transportation. And what <coughs> that does is make public transportation for people who can't afford self-driving cars more expensive. You have fewer people you know, it, it disrupts public transit agencies. Uh, you, you know, you create disparities among people who can afford to use a line service versus public transit. And I think that there are some equity and cost issues involved when you start to disrupt public transit agencies. And so um, you could do that very quickly and there would, could be some negative consequences there as well. Although certainly plenty of convenience for folks who are actually using the service. One more question, we have a question over here. Just want to ask sort of an optimistic question. Um, going back to what Jigger mentioned at the, at the top of the show, um, despite an unfriendly administration, we've seen clean tech business, um, you know, and technology march on. Uh, wanted to get a sense from the four of you: Is there uh, within clean tech is there sort of a subsector that you see as not getting much uh, attention and investment, maybe as it deserves, in terms of the 
climate impact or environmental impact it can make? That's a great question. Jigger, do you want to take that one first? Sure. Since you're um, evaluating a lot of portfolios of technology. We, we are definitely evaluating a lot of uh, bad ideas. No, um, <laughs> um, Not no, solar roads. Yeah, exactly. Though. No, I um, um, So in general, the thing that makes me most positive is all the ideas I see in waste. Um, it's just shocking to me how much embedded energy and you know like is in the stuff we throw away and then we just expect to bury it of course there's no air and it doesn't really like decompose and like even though even those like compostable like knives and stuff like like they actually need to be at like 158 degrees and then decompose and they never do and so they're just like garbage but <laughs> but like i see so many um business models now around you know taking like sugar bagasse and turning it into like pulp pulp uh fiber for making it into paper or like taking a lot of like mixed use trash and actually turning into pellets that then replace met coal for cement kilns and like you know steel mills or um let's think of what else i've seen recently that's been interesting but like there's a lot of stuff out there where people have figured out how to use enzymes and things to like really like get back to the circular economy stuff that people have been talking about for a while and that just gives me a ton of hope because i think there's just a Huge, huge, huge opportunity there. Anybody else have any thoughts? I think one place that is untapped that we have so much more to do on is energy efficiency. I mean, we just got to squeeze it out, and we haven't done it. <laughs> because yeah. there's, there's a lot of really cool stuff out there, energy management systems, distributed energy resources, but we got to really double down on energy efficiency. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I think the innovative stuff in energy efficiency revolves around how you measure and track and sell efficiency and for so long the industry has been bogged down by complicated modeling and wishing and hoping and not necessarily seeing the results that are claimed and um, you know there, there are a lot of efficiency advocates who are really excited about the progress and they rate states about how well they're doing in energy efficiency but like those rankings are just based on theoretical policy they're not based on performance and efficiency has a performance problem and it is the key solution and so i think that the more interesting opportunities are in how you track and how you track measure and sell megawatts i would just add the uh, I would hesitate to call it the Internet of Things, but like, I read an analysis today of telecom strategies around automobiles. And it just it kind of blew my mind that we're, if we're not already in a couple of years, we're going to be talking about, you know, oh, hey, I, I heard you got a new car. Who's your telecom provider? Uh, and so, you know, like, well, I guess I have to think about that now. <laughs> we'll over Verizon even more. <laughs> God. All right, it's time to wrap up the show and give uh, everybody a free electron. Catherine, what is your free electron? Uh, my free electron. You got one, I know, right? I know, I know. Okay, okay, sorry. <laughs> All right. So earlier this week, I spent a couple of days in New Brunswick, not New Brunswick, New Jersey, but Fredericton, New Brunswick, in Canada. And I was invited to speak by New Brunswick Power uh, that has a partnership with Siemens. And a big shout out to Michelle and Sonia who invited me up there. Um, they are doing some amazing stuff. So. You know, they're in a, th that province has very low electricity rates, but very high bills. They also have flat residential rates. And they're trying to figure out how on earth are we going to get to reduce 
our emissions 30% by 2030 and what kinds of creative things can we come up with? And they're really trying to think outside the box. So NB Power has teamed up with Siemens to try to really say like, let's just put everything on the table. And uh, it was really, really interesting. And I, I was really lucky to be able to go somewhere different and it was in Canada. So they're all really nice. Absolutely. <laughs> Jigger, your free electron. Yes, I gave a little bit of it away earlier, but I think there's, um, there's over 80,000 non-powered dams in the U.S. and then even more that had slight amounts of power on it um, installed like sort of in 1918 or 1935 or whatever. And I think that um, the, the thing that I've been most impressed by was two or three weeks ago, Eagle Creek got sold for hundreds of millions of dollars to um, one of the uh, pension funds in, um, uh, in Canada. And a lot of the sort of diaspora of like Eagle Creek are going after all these smaller dams. And so there's, I think there's gonna be this huge gold rush of, um, you know, dam repowerings in the mm -hmm. country. And, and it's, it's the same thing that we've seen over and over again. Like this technology has been deployed for over 20 years in like Eastern Europe, UK, other places. It's like coming for the first time to like the US. It's like that old NBC slogan, right? If you haven't seen it, it's new to you. Um, <laughs> well, I so, remember there was an analysis like, gosh, eight or nine years ago yeah. out of Idaho showing that there were like 1,800 dams around the country that could theoretically support power generation that are, you know, that don't have powerhouses on them. And yeah. so there's a lot of potential uh, in, in this country. Yeah. Yep. Eric, your free electrons. So uh, notebooks are mostly filled up with sort of uh, clever and interesting things that other people say. And the structure of, of your moderation here, going from global to national to local, uh, reminded me of something that it's an uh, environmental consultant I know, um, Greg Love, told me a couple weeks ago, which is you can sort of unify those personal, individual, local, um, national and international things by focusing on uh, cars, cattle, and coal. Um, and obviously, a lot of the cleverness there being in the alliteration. But I, I don't know. I, uh, That's how all energy uh, policy should be formed. Um, but, uh, but there was something in, like, in trying to think about how to, all right, well, we talked about global and local and, and national. How do you unify those things down to the individual level? I, you know, that's, that's not a bad way to, uh, to set your own personal metrics and try to weigh them against uh, metrics larger than yourself. Mm. So since we were talking about uh, energy efficiency, it sparked a story that someone sent me on Twitter yesterday, a couple of days ago, showing that in uh, my great city of Boston, Massachusetts, where we have a oh. crazy building boom, one in five new buildings are in the bottom 50% of uh, energy efficiency. Like that is abhorrent. It is so shameful. And the amount, the type of building that we're building around Boston, they're just these soul-sucking, horrible buildings. They look terrible. They're built for you know extremely rich white people. There's, they're like they look like shopping malls. I mean, it's just really sad to see what is happening with all the new builds in the city and. On top of it, the energy performance is abysmal. And there are a few buildings uh, that have just been built, uh, one right downtown in the financial district that is less efficient than 95% of other buildings of its size. I mean, and Boston really prides itself on 
establishing strong climate goals, on having a climate action plan. You know, we are a city like uh, New York that is Press seriously, <laughs> yeah, exactly, seriously <laughs> under threat from rising sea levels. And we've already seen some pretty, you know, major impacts with nor'easters in, in this last winter. We're, you know, that we're, we're getting flooded out in our subways and uh, the seaport is getting flooded out. And so the idea that we can build these buildings today with that type of energy performance is just really shameful. And so I guess that's my real pessimistic story of the, of the evening. But I just hope that like, it, it, I think the positive side of the story is that we now have building energy ordinances that allow us access to this data so we know what's happening. And then you can, you know, the advocates and the people building these buildings and the other business leaders can start to hold um, developers accountable. So it's both a good thing that, you know, cities like New York and Boston have these ordinances that allow us to see this transparent data, but it's kind of sad that a city that is considered so progressive on climate change has this kind of uh, performance in its buildings. So New York, do better. And with that, this is the Energy Gang. Thanks everyone for being here. We had so much fun. Catherine Hamilton, Jigger Shaw, Eric Rostin.